Welcome to M, your new favorite true crime and mystery podcast, where we talk about cases and stories that have caught our eye. I'm Justine. And I'm your co-host, Holly. Let's dive in. On December 24th, 1945, Christmas Eve, the Sauter family home went up in flames. The fire would launch the small town of Fayetteville, West Virginia, into a mystery that has not been solved to this day. Before the fire, the Sauter family was made up of 12 people. Father, George Sauter, Mother, Jenny Sauter, their 10 children, John, Joe, Marion, George Jr., Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny Jr., Betty, and Sylvia. However, once the flames subsided, the Sauter family would be missing five members, none of whom would ever be seen again. Did the missing children die in the fire that day? Their bodies were never located, or did they escape West Virginia never to be heard from again? There are some witnesses who claim to have seen them over the years, but there's no strong evidence that's been found to support this theory. The circumstances surrounding the fire were bizarre to say the least, and it seems possible that the Sauter family had some enemies in Fayetteville. But in order to get the full story, we need to go back in time before any Sauter children were even born. George Sauter is an interesting guy. There's a lot of mystery about him, even before the fire that led to the disappearance of five of his children. George was born in Italy in 1895. His name was originally Giorgio Sadu. When he was 13 years old, he left Italy and immigrated to the United States. His older brother accompanied him on the trip, but went back to Italy as soon as the pair had cleared customs. It's assumed that this is when George's name was changed. George's immigration story is the start of the Sauter family mystery. Why? Because George never talked about why he left Italy or why his brother would leave him alone in a new country at only 13 years old. There's simply no explanation given. His young age wasn't a deterrent for success, though, because George's story seems to be the perfect example of the American dream. George started working on Pennsylvania railroads, then became a driver in Smithers, West Virginia. Eventually, George started his own trucking company in Smithers, where he met his wife, Jenny, a local storekeeper's daughter. After marrying, the couple settled down in Fayetteville, West Virginia, known for its large population of Italian immigrants. Their two-story house was about two miles from downtown. And the couple started their family in 1923, when the first child was born. George's business was successful, and they quickly adopted a respectable reputation as a middle-class family in Fayetteville. George, however, was known to ruffle some feathers about town with his strong opinions, most notably his fervent disapproval of Italian dictator Benito Mussolini, who was respected by many in their Italian-American community. By 1943, 20 years after the birth of their first child, the Sauter's 10th and final child was born. Nine of the 10 children were living at home in 1943. Their second oldest son had left to fight in World War II. Mussolini's execution the next year, in 1944, did nothing to calm the slight social problems that George had created with some people in Fayetteville. One person who took issue with George's stance on Mussolini was a visiting life insurance salesman who eerily declared that George's house would go up in smoke and his children would be destroyed, claiming this would happen because of the, quote, dirty remarks George had been making about Mussolini. The ominous predictions of fire wouldn't end there, as another visitor warned George that a pair of fuse boxes at the back of his house would cause a fire someday. 
Even though the house had been rewired recently when the family installed an electric stove, even the electric company had signed off on the safety of the house's electrical system. More spooky still, in the weeks leading up to Christmas that year, the oldest Sodder boys remarked that they had noticed a strange car parked in town and swore that the people inside were watching the younger Sodder children as they walked home from school. On Christmas Eve 1945, most of the Sodder family gathered at their home in Fayetteville to celebrate. Joe, still in the army, was not there, but all other family members were accounted for. The Sodders exchanged a few gifts, and three of the youngest girls asked to stay up late and play with their new toys. By 10 p.m. that night, most of the Sodders were in bed. George, John, and George Jr., all asleep, and Jenny soon joined them with two-year-old Sylvia. Marion, the eldest daughter, fell asleep on the couch. Still awake, though, were Martha, Jenny Jr., Betty, Maurice, and Louis, who had all gotten permission to stay up and play. Maurice and Louis were also tasked with feeding the cows and putting the chickens away before they could head to bed. At 12.30 that morning, Jenny was awoken by the telephone. She went downstairs to answer it, wondering who would be calling at such a late hour. When she did answer, she noticed the sounds of a party on the other end. Voices, laughter, clinking glasses. The caller was a woman whose voice Jenny did not recognize, and she asked to speak with someone who Jenny didn't know. Jenny told the woman that she had the wrong number, but made note of the woman's weird laugh before she hung up the phone. As Jenny returned to the stairs, she noticed that Marion was asleep on the couch and assumed that the other children who had stayed up had since returned to their own beds in the attic as they were nowhere to be seen downstairs. Before returning to bed, Jenny closed the curtains and turned out the lights, something that the children usually took care of if they stayed up past their parents. Perhaps Marion intended to complete those chores before accidentally falling asleep on the couch. That wouldn't explain, however, why the front door was left unlocked. Jenny made sure to turn the latch and headed back upstairs to bed. She wouldn't get to sleep for long before she was awoken by another strange noise around 1 a.m., a loud bang coming from above her head. It sounded like an object hitting the roof hard and then rolling down, perhaps not wanting to investigate in the middle of the cold December night and hearing no further strange noises, Jenny went back to sleep once again. Not 30 minutes later, she was woken up for the final time that night to the smell of smoke. Getting out of bed, Jenny realized that George's office was on fire, around the telephone line in the fuse box. Jenny woke George up, who in turn woke the oldest boys, John and George Jr. Jenny brought Sylvia down to Marion and returned upstairs to attempt to get to the other children who were asleep in the attic. Though they all called frantically to the sleeping children, they could not go upstairs to save them as they claimed the stairway to their room was already on fire. The family had no choice but to leave the house and attempt to save the children from the outside. In his first police interview, John, 23 at the time, claimed to have gone up to the attic to alert his siblings of the fire, even shaking them to attempt to wake them up. But he later changed his story, saying that they could only call up to the remaining children and never saw them after realizing the house was on fire. Because the telephone line was seemingly compromised during the fire, the Sauter family's phone didn't work. Marion ran to a neighbor's to call the fire department, but was unsuccessful when she couldn't reach the operator. A motorist who had seen the flames from the road also tried to call the fire department from a nearby tavern, but was also unsuccessful 
when he too couldn't get an operator response. Eventually, the fire department was notified of the fire by a call originating from another phone in town. Back at the Sauter house, George attempted to save his children by climbing an exterior wall and breaking open an attic window, cutting up his arm in the process. George had wanted to use a ladder, usually propped against the house, for this rescue mission, but the ladder was missing from its standard place that night and couldn't be easily located anywhere nearby. Realizing that the children would likely not be able to climb down the side of the house, George attempted to pull two of his trucks under the attic window for them to climb onto. Despite working perfectly fine the day before, neither of his trucks would start. Remembering a water barrel that might be used to douse the flames, George's hopes were dashed once again when he saw that it was frozen solid. Finally defeated, George, Jenny, John, Marion, George Jr., and Sylvia watched as their house burned, assuming that the other five solder children had perished in the fire. The fire department, shorthanded due to the war and further impaired by irregular practices, arrived around 8 a.m., just about seven hours after the fire began. The delayed response was due to the phone tree system implemented by the fire department, where the operators would be informed of a fire, then contact one volunteer, who would call another and so on until all firemen were alerted. Additionally, the fire chief, F.J. Morris, was unable to drive the fire truck and had to wait for someone who could operate the vehicle in order to respond to the blaze. By the time the firemen arrived, there was nothing that could be done to save the home or the children inside. As the firemen sifted through the ash that had once been the solder home, they took note of something very strange. There were no remains found in the ashes. Bones, which would have been left behind had five children died in a house fire, were nowhere to be found. Fire Chief Morris informed the surviving solders that though no bones were found as evidence, it was his belief that the five children had died in the fire. It's worth mentioning here that the search of the site took about two hours, where a similar search today would take much longer. It's quite possible that the volunteer firemen conducting the search were not as thorough as they could have been. Once their initial search was completed, Chief Morris instructed George to leave the site undisturbed so that the state's fire marshal could come and investigate as well. However, only four days later, George bulldozed five feet of dirt over the site that used to be his home, claiming that he and Jenny could not bear the sight of it any longer. He wanted to commemorate his lost children, planning to turn the property into a memorial garden for them. Later, the local coroner convened an inquest, conducted by a jury, to determine the cause of the fire. The jury determined that the fire was an accident caused by faulty wiring in the home. Interestingly, and somewhat suspiciously, the man who had threatened George due to his comments on Mussolini, the one who warned George that his house would burn down and his children would be destroyed, was actually on that jury that determined the fire was an accident. Later that month, death certificates were issued, only five days after the fire on December 30th, and a funeral was held for the five children on January 2nd. The local newspaper published a strange and contradictory story, claiming both that all bodies had been found and that only part of one body had been recovered. While their surviving children attended their siblings' funeral, George and Jenny did not, claiming to be too stricken by grief to show up. After the fire, as life moved on, the Sodders started to question aspects of the official findings in their case. If the fire had been electrical, why had the lights stayed on after the fire started? If the fire was caused by faulty wiring, wouldn't that cause the house to lose power immediately? 
Why was the ladder that was usually propped up against the house found at the bottom of an embankment 75 feet away? It came to light that the telephone line wasn't burned in the fire, as the Sodders originally thought, but it was cut intentionally by someone who climbed a 14-foot telephone pole to do so. Maybe that's why the ladder was so far away from its usual spot. There was a man who had been caught stealing a pulley system from the house. He was seen by neighbors at the time of the fire and was later identified and arrested. He claimed to have cut the phone line himself, thinking that it was a power line, but he didn't take credit for the fire. And there's no record that identifies him. Why would he have wanted to cut a power line at the house? It's not like it would have covered up his theft. And then remember that the line had to have been cut sometime between 12.30 a.m., the wrong number phone call, and the fire around 1.30 a.m. That's a really short period of time for someone to accidentally cut a phone line, then not start a fire, but have a fire start weirdly around exactly the same time. Jenny is also on record disputing Fire Chief Morris's claims that all traces of her children's bodies must have been burned completely. The flames weren't hot enough to destroy household appliances, many of which were found among the ash, so how had they been hot enough to completely cremate any of the remains of her children? Jenny tested her theories by burning small piles of animal bones to see if they had turned to ash, and they never did. An employee at a local crematorium told Jenny that human bones could remain intact even after two hours of 2000 degree heat, much hotter and much longer than the solder house fire burned. George believed his trucks had been tampered with as well. Why was it that they didn't start that night? Did the thief sabotage those vehicles as well? He never admitted to it. George's son-in-law did tell the Charleston Gazette Mail in 2013 that he believes that George and his sons accidentally flooded the engines in their rush to start the trucks. Eventually, spring came, and the Sodders completed construction on the memorial garden at the site of the fire. However, the Sodders still had questions about that night. Some of them believed that the children hadn't perished in the blaze, and evidence continued to surface that might support that theory. A bus driver who had passed through Fayetteville that Christmas claimed to have seen people throwing balls of fire at the solder house. Sylvia, still two, found a small, hard, dark green rubber ball near the house. Something George and Jenny took away, and George said looked similar to a pineapple bomb hand grenade used in combat. Remembering that Jenny had heard something fall onto the roof and then roll down, the Sodders claimed that the fire likely started on the roof from an incendiary device. Although, of course, they couldn't prove anything. There were even witnesses who came forward saying that they had seen the missing Sodder children after the fire. One woman said she had seen the children in a car that passed her as she was watching the house burn. Another woman claimed she served the children breakfast that morning after the fire at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston. The Sodders went on to hire a private investigator named Cece Tinsley to look into their case. The PI learned of rumors going around Fayetteville claiming that Fire Chief Morris had found a heart at the scene of the fire, which he packed into a box and secretly buried. A local minister, whom Morris had confessed to, admitted to George that this rumor was true. George and Tinsley confronted Morris, and Morris agreed to dig up that metal box, which they then took to a funeral director to inspect. The funeral director told the men that the box actually contained fresh beef liver, and it had been exposed it had never been exposed to fire. 
Later, more rumors circulated around Fayetteville that Morris had never actually found human remains at the site of the fire, but had later buried the beef liver in hopes that the Sodders would find it and see that as proof that their children had died in the fire and stop looking into the events of that night. Not believing his children to be dead, George was ever on the lookout for his missing children. He saw a picture of a girl in a magazine that resembled his daughter Betty and drove all the way to New York City to the girl's school, where his demands to see her were refused. He even attempted to get the FBI to take up his case, but was unsuccessful in those endeavors as well, as the Fayetteville authorities declined to ask for the Bureau's assistance. In the summer of 1949, almost four years after the fire, a new search of the dirt at the site of the Sauter home was conducted. A few household items were found in the dirt, in addition to a few small bone fragments, later determined to be human vertebrae, all from the same person. It was determined that the bones likely belonged to someone around 16 or 17 years old, meaning that it was highly unlikely that they belonged to any of the missing Sauter children, the oldest of which was 14 at the time of the fire. The bones also showed no evidence that they had ever been exposed to fire, and the report finally concluded that it was probable that the bones hadn't come from a solder child, but instead were from the dirt that George used to cover the site. A couple more official efforts to solve the solder case were made, but they were all closed without solving the mystery. Even after official efforts ceased, the solder family continued to attempt to find their missing children. They printed and distributed flyers, offering a large $5,000 reward worth over $50,000 today for information that would solve the case for even one of their five missing children. In 1952, they erected a large billboard with the same information in Fayetteville. A lot of people that have grown up there remember seeing this uh, in their childhood. The family's efforts yielded multiple clues. One in particular seemed pretty promising. A woman who claimed to have seen the children accompanied by two men and two women about a week after the fire at a Charleston hotel. She claimed that the adults seemed to be of Italian descent, even briefly speaking Italian in front of her. They seemed hostile and angry, and the entire party left early the next morning after she attempted to have a conversation with them. A previous witness had claimed to see them at a rest stop between Fayetteville and Charleston, and if that was true, it does kind of make sense that they would end up at a Charleston hotel. This witness, who saw them at the hotel, was ultimately deemed unreliable. Uh, she had never met the Sauters and only saw photos of the children two years after the fire and her alleged encounter. Officials just assumed she wasn't capable of recognizing children she first saw a photo of two years after she saw them in person. George answered other tips in person, though, traveling across the country to follow up with various witnesses. In 1967, something strange happened. Jenny received something in the mail postmarked from Kentucky with no return address. The envelope contained a photo, a young man around 30 years old, with features that strongly resembled her son, Louis. On the back of the photo was handwritten, Louis Sauter, I love brother Frankie. I-L-I-L boys, A90132 or 35. The family didn't understand the message on the back and even hired another detective who traveled all the way to Kentucky to look into the photo. But after he left, he never contacted the Sodders again. George continued searching until his death in 1969. 
Jenny and three of her four surviving children then continued the search after George's death. Jenny wore black in mourning until her death in 1989 and kept up the, her children's memorial garden at the site of the fire. Strangely, John, 23 at the time of the fire, never talked about the events except to say that the family should accept what happened and move on. Remember that he's the one who changed his story to the police after the fire. The surviving Sauter children eventually theorized that George had been extorted by the Sicilian Mafia, and someone who knew about the planned arson had taken the children to protect them. Officials and a great deal of internet sleuths believed the children died in the fire, and that the search the next morning wasn't thorough enough to unearth their remains. Who knows? Really? I mean, did the five missing Sauter children escape the fire that night? maybe aided by someone who knew of plans for arson? If so, why did they never contact their family members afterward? Or did they die in the fire and their remains were just covered in ash and undetected by the rather truncated search efforts the next morning? The only certainty in this case is that no one knows for sure. Everybody thinks they might know what happened, but there's just not enough evidence to find out. Unfortunately, no one has ever heard from the five missing Sauter children, and most assume that they're definitely dead at this point. I want to thank our listeners for supporting the show. Leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, and of course, share these stories and these cases with your friends and your family. You never know what information they might have.